Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! And I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Now, Roger, I think there are two types of gay horror fans, film fans out there that are going to make a connection when they hear that. The first branch is going to think of the, right before the iconic, no wire hangers and mommy dearest remember yes yes christina and christopher and joan are are reciting to all a good night and then it cuts right into the horrific wire hanger scene the other the other branch of gay gay fans the horror fans are going to latch on to the film we are covering this evening the classic using it loosely (laughs) (laughs) slasher yeah well, you know, it, it actually has become quite a, I mean, it has become quite a holiday staple. I mean, you look at holiday uh, Christmas lists and this is always on on it. Because it, let's be honest, it is one of the very first films to use the killer Santa trope. Um, it, it predated Silent Night, Deadly Night by about four years. So what we are discussing, if you haven't figured it out, ladies and gentlemen, is the 1980 holiday slasher flick. To All a Good Night, directed by the one and only David Hess, who horror fans will know as uh, Krug from Wes Craven's classic Last House on the Left. Uh, This was his venture into film directing, and it is quite an odd little uh, bundle of holiday joy, Roger. Had you seen this before? I had not seen this movie before, and I, um, I went in with very little sleuthing on my part i kind of just sat down and fucking watched it and i realized a few things i realized a you know it has a rather mixed bag of responses from fans um and i can completely see why Mm -hmm. to be honest i see i get the love i get the hate but um i was actually surprised at how much i enjoyed this film for what it was um when i say loosely a classic I think more in the sense of, like, it's surprising that when you think of holiday horror, there are a lot of titles that have, that outshine this one. Um, And and for this one being the first to to take on the killer Santa trope, you think it would, uh, by default, get more recognition beyond queer fans, just within the genre in general. But it really has kind of slipped under the radar. However, I also realized that um, there are a few specific moments that are from this film that I have seen in compilations and kind of uh, classic countdowns. and uh, I never, never tied these moments to this movie until watching it, which made for a really fun experience viewing it for the first time. And I, I found it to be quite an enjoyable watch, surprisingly enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, it has it has a lot of charm. It has a lot of charm. It has a lot of heart to it, I think. I, I mean, it's a, it's certainly not a big budget production. I mean, this this had to have been made on a very minuscule budget, even even for 1980. It's not chock full of well known actors or actresses. I think that you know, part of the reason why it might not be as um, prevalent in terms of when when people talk about holiday horror classics is you know like the Silent Night Deadly Nights. They that one benefited from having all that controversy. You know, that was a film that made it into, you know, theaters, mainstream theaters across the country. I don't think this one did. Uh, I think this one played at a few select theaters, but it kind of just came and went. You know, Silent Night, Deadly Night made made a big uproar, you know, um, when it it came out. All the controversy, the parents picketing it. Of course, you have a classic like Black Christmas, which is a classic because it is very, very widely considered not just one of the greatest holiday themed horror films of all time, but one of the greatest horror films of all time that has influenced the genre tremendously. Um, if you look at all the slasher flicks that came after black Christmas, you can see it's stamp all over them. So this one, just a kind of a little independent film that, you know, it looked like it, you know, it, it wasn't glossy. It wasn't, loud it kind of came and went and it sort of gained its following much much later after its release yeah you know um uh, a few things going off what you just said one thing that like you know it's it's kind of comparing apples to oranges between this and a black christmas because at the end of the day black christmas is an intelligent film it's an emotionally intelligent film it deals with a lot of things the characters are are coping through certain things that, you know, slasher element aside, still makes for a really great character study. The whole abortion aspect, um, Olivia Hussey's character, you know, what she's kind of just experiencing as everything else is kind of going on around her. It is a very human story. Uh, This is not necessarily what I would call an intellectual film. Uh, This movie really, it's filled with a lot of strange decisions and twists that really don't make sense if you're going to sit down and dissect this movie it is not intelligent or or um really doesn't make a lot of sense but it's 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 mere popcorn cinema and for that alone i can appreciate it the one thing i will say though in watching this film compared to other titles we mentioned and i i hate to say this but the fact of the matter is it's difficult to really feel like this is a seasonal offering when it is completely void of all things winter and snow. And that's the one thing that I think maybe uh, is the nail in the coffin for this film. And even if you look at the promo art, they try to make it look as wintry as possible. But like when you watch this movie, I don't care if the killer is dressed as Santa, you could have thrown any costume on him. This movie doesn't feel like a Christmas-based film it just feels like another slasher that happens to have a few holiday elements sprinkled throughout it absolutely i would totally agree with that the christmas atmosphere is is one of the my biggest complaints with this film when we get into it is it's just lacking the atmosphere and i don't really necessarily i mean yeah it sort of has to do with the fact that you know it's not a snowy location i can forgive that because the film is set in california you know of course it's not going to look wintry but they could have at least made the decision to deck out the exterior of the um, the house, the property, and the interior a little bit more to make it a lot more festive. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but you know, Mrs. Claus, my my Christmas theme film that actually 
I, I will talk about the connections because this film heavily inspired Mrs. Claus. There's a couple of key scenes in this film that are very much replicated in or played homage to in Mrs. Claus. But, you know, Mrs. Claus, my film was filmed in June in Houston, Texas in a hundred degree heat, but we did everything we could to make it look like Christmas. I mean, it was my goal as you know, when we shot that film to have something Christmas in, in every shot whether it was Christmas lights, a Christmas tree, a Christmas decoration, the, the characters wearing a Christmas sweater. Uh, we had a snow machine that we used for the opening scene to give some snow. So we really tried to amp up the Christmas atmosphere. And I, I really think that that we succeeded because a lot of times when you read reviews, even even negative reviews of the film, they do mention that it does actually get the Christmas atmosphere right. So I really, and you know, I did it cheap. I mean, we filmed Mrs. Claus for... <laughs> I don't want to say the budget, but it was definitely way less than this film. And we, we, we still made it look like Christmas. So you're right there. You're right. Yeah. And, well, and if, beyond even the setting and the environment and the, you know, the weather, the climate aside, um, when you even look deeper into it, into the, the, the story and the cause of what transpires and everything, it's not even like this is rooted in something holiday inspired or uh, the, the, the the season, the holiday has no influence on anything. They just, I think they were just like, why don't we make a slasher and set it during Christmas? Um, and that's honestly all it is. Other than that, everything else that goes on is not dependent on the holiday. Um, it has no real influence on the material, and, and I do feel that that kind of takes away from, you know, if you're sitting down one and a, a festive holiday slasher full of, like, Christmas, like, influences and nods towards the season, you're not going to get it here. All you're going to get is a few occasional Christmas lights, a cheap Santa costume, and that's about it. Yeah, and, you know, I, this was just definitely a cash-in on the holiday horror that had started to become prevalent around this time, you know, Halloween, Friday the 13th, My Bloody Valentine, which I know was right around the same time. So they were just trying to cash in on the holiday horror theme. Bless their hearts. I mean, I, I do love a lot of stuff about the film. I do wish it was just drenched in more Christmas atmosphere. But before we get into the film, you know, we do want to uh, shout out our Patreon uh, we do have, you know, we did have a new, a new patron, Brian Reed. I think we shouted him out last week, but we're giving you another shout out, Brian. Thank you. We, we have some great stuff. So check it out. You know, we, we've, we've posted some sample clips of our full length Patreon episodes on our main feed. So if you want to check them out, they're up for you to listen to. If it sounds like something that intrigues you go to dark, uh, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast, and you can get access to all of our bonus material. And we are keeping it Christmas or at least holiday themed with our choices for December too. So lots of holiday goodness coming from dark night of the podcast this month. Ho, 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 ho. Our stockings are full. <laughs> what else is full, Roger? Oh, uh. <laughs> they're gonna have to join patreon to find out <laughs> yeah right but let's you, you ready you ready to get into this oh my god i'm as i'm as ready as i'll ever be okay Take so it away troy <laughs> well the film begins with a text on screen that tells us that we are at calvin calvin's finishing school for girls two christmases ago very ominous setting. I do love the look of this house or whatever it is. Yeah. I love the look of it. It's it's very ominous. It's huge. It looks really cool. They they ace the location at least. 
But right away, it cuts to some like funky, like disco type music that is just jarring. The score in this film sounds like a they like sat a child down at a Fisher Price keyboard and just had him like pound at it like (laughs) the score is like i mean no offense but like we've heard a lot of real good scores from this era as of late and this this one does not stand out to me as one of the strongest i'm just gonna put it out there but it's fine it is what it is well and then another thing you know if they wanted to take advantage of the chris christmas theme of the film that the score could have sounded somewhat christmassy Again, something we did with Mrs. Claus. We have a the whole score of Mrs. Claus is kind of this fucked up version of Jingle Bells. See, guys, I'm just I'm trying to get you to go watch Mrs. Claus. Come on, it's Christmas and Mother Krampus too. And Mother Krampus too. You're right. (laughs) But yeah, no, honestly, that there is not a single inkling of of uh, anything that sounds like remotely like a sleigh bell, no, or any kind of jingling anything. It's all like weird techno-y disc or like you know kind of like early like synth like kind of sounds like an midi file uh it doesn't sound very effective it actually i think in a lot of moments takes away from what could be some more suspenseful sequences but whatever it, it, it's, you start hearing the shitty music and you get what is a very it's this brief scene, intro this, that's what i was gonna say <laughs> this scene <sighs> boy i was very disappointed with this opening yes okay I get it. This film is trying to set a the stage for like a revenge type film. So we know the the motive of the killer is going to be something. It's very much like Prom Night. The opening of Prom Night, it's almost exactly the same, except it's like 15 minutes shorter. This scene, I, I, I counted it. it. It's 55 seconds. And for an opening scene that is really establishing, we find out the motivation of what happens in the film. That is way too short. We don't get to know any of these characters. We don't get to know anything about them. Even the the main, the girl that, okay, so I'm going to get into it. What happens is this girl, we don't even know who she is. Is she a sorority sister? Who is she? She's being chased around by all the other girls in this house. And they're like, some of them are wearing, one of them has the Santa mask on. One of them has like an ax. And they're chasing her around saying just like the stupidest things, like not even ominous things. Like there's that one that's saying, sorority, sorority. And they're chasing her around. They end up chasing her up to the balcony. And in the most awkward way possible, the editing in this film is really bad in parts because this scene is edited terribly. We don't even see kind of what happens. We just see all the girls come out on the balconies. Apparently one scares her. So she falls off the balcony and there's this really obvious shot of this dummy that falls to the ground that doesn't even have the same hairstyle or anything as as the girl. And then that's it. That's the opening scene. There's nothing. We don't get to know anything. Was this a sorority prank? Obviously, what was going on? We don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's <clears throat> it's hard to even tell if like the girls involved are the ones that we end up following throughout the course of the film because it's filmed with this like halo-y kind of effect, obviously to give it a flashback kind of vibe. Um, but it just honestly makes it look like you're like looking through Vaseline. Like it doesn't help. Um, but so you, you get the idea it's a flashback. They chase her up to this balcony. She falls. And one of the, the worst issues, Troy, you mentioned the bad editing, and you're right. One of the worst aspects of this is she gets startled and she falls backwards over the railing. And it immediately cuts to a shot of this mannequin, again, blatantly a doll, 
falling stomach first. Like, within, like, you don't see, like, a body rotation or anything. Like, it's just a horrible edit. And so, like, it's already jarring to the eye because it's such a bad edit. Then you acknowledge the fact that this is a, like, a wooden mannequin with absolutely no, like, life or humanity to it whatsoever. Just, like, flopping on the ground. And, like, it's so quick and it's so brief. And I think they just knew it was such a bad sequence that they just tried to get out of it. But, my God, like, if this is the note you're starting off on, ugh... I mean, luckily, the film resurrects in a few areas from here, but it is a rough introduction. It's rough. It's definitely one. Of, yeah, it's definitely I, I'm going to say it. It's definitely one of the worst opening sequences of an 80s horror film slasher film by far. Uh, editing, score, uh, lighting. It's it's terrible. And like you said, luckily, it only lasts 55 seconds. It's so quick. But you're left like thinking, what the fuck? What the fuck did I just watch? However, the film does does redeem itself pretty quickly for the most part. We now get a text to screen that says it's two years later. Yeah. You see a shit ton of really fucking f- fancy cars um, pulling out of this lot. Obviously, a bunch of these girls are getting picked up by their parents uh, and going home for holiday vacation. And I got to say, I think a majority of the budget for this film went just to procuring these very elaborate vehicles. I mean, they are all just fancy, classic cars. And I, you don't see a lot of budget spent elsewhere in this movie, let me tell you. But these cars are very nice. And uh, it's it's quite a, like a, for, for such a brief opening, you get quite a long introduction to all these girls as they're basically, you're, you're finding out which characters are staying behind for the holiday break. Yeah, and there's just like random scenes. Like there's that dickhead dad that's like yelling at his wife and daughter to hurry up and get their asses in their car. And and then there's like uh, who we find out to be Nancy. She's giving her, did they bring her cat to visit her or what? She's given a, her, she's given her mom back her cat saying, take care of it, please. I'm like, was the cat with you or did their parents like drive up to bring you the cat? And then why aren't you going home with them? Because she's one of the ones that stays for Christmas. Her parents literally, they're there, but they leave. They leave her there. Because in the next scene, she's like, well, we'll get there. In the next scene, she's like, you know what I want to do for Christmas? I wish I was going home. Your parents were just there. Why didn't they take your ass home? Probably because you're a whiny fucking brat the whole movie. She's a whitey brat, but let's take a minute to talk about Nancy. Because you take it takes a moment before you realize that Nancy is kind of the focal character of the cast. Um, I didn't expect this at first, but she kind of stands up. Uh, I don't want to say she rises up because she doesn't do a lot of shit. But she she ends up be kind of becoming the like the final girl, you know? And I gotta say, she's annoying as all hell, but I think she's also just just a peach she's so sweet and she's so delightful and virginal uh, i i didn't expect to like her i know i shouldn't but i got a i got a, a warm spot in my heart for nancy and you know what she sees she strikes me as the kind of child who's had the upbringing that her parents would bring a cat to visit before christmas break because i bet her parents dote over her i don't know why they're not bringing her home but um it is what it is. But yeah, you um you get an introduction to kind of all of these girls and what a cast. <laughs> what a cast because there's a wide array of girls here, varying degrees of talents, I would say, but none of them forgettable. No, the cast in this is quite 
interesting, especially the females. I feel like the males, eh, sort of disposable, except maybe two of them. But the girl, yeah, the girls are pretty, I would say a lot of them are, are really charming. You you get to like them, um, especially upon repeated viewings. Like I find myself like liking certain characters more each time I watch the film. Um, because after this whole elaborate scene of the, of all the parents taking their kids home, the ones that are going home. And then there's like some, somebody on the speaker over the, uh, the loudspeaker saying, just saying random things. Like if you left your underwear hanging out back, please go get it. And Miss Jensen says dinner's going to be a half hour late for those staying. It's just all this random stuff. But then the very next scene we cut to the girls that have decided to stay are sitting in the living room and we have, uh, let me think if I, I have their names. We have Nancy, of course, played by Jennifer Runyon, who went on to somewhat, you know, fame with Charles in Charge. We have Trish, right, who is the British babe. Let's raise a glass of Trish for a moment, because God, if anyone steals the show in this movie, it's fucking Trish. It's Trish. Uh, we have Melody. We have Sam. And we have Leah. And they are quite the, the mix. They're sitting around, and this is when Nancy's like, oh, I wish I was going home for Christmas. And uh, one of Melody's like, oh, you would. And she's like, I, I would rather be anywhere than home, and I'd rather be in a cave. And right away, Trish is upstairs, and she like leans over the banister wearing this like very revealing blouse with her titty almost hanging over the banister. And her English accent, I can't do an English accent, but I, this, this broad is, is something else. <laughs> you know that director was like, I need you to lean over the, the banister more. And she's like, you want me to lean over the banister more? And he's like, more! And like, her sandbag breast just fully flopping over the edge of it. Like, who actually leans on a banister like that? You know they were like directing her, like, we need to see your tits more. She's <laughs> yeah. like, you want, you want more of my tits? And she's like, I'm right. <laughs> How's this? And like, these, this girl's knockers are fucking wild. They're flipping and flopping all over the place, and she's fully aware of it. But yeah, I mean, this gal has some jugs on her. I'm shocked we don't see him come out to play. We don't, almost, but we, yeah, we don't see her. But she is very like the sexualized one. Listen, we have seen some whores. Well, this whore. <laughs> I mean, we've seen some, we've seen some, some ladies with a very like, high turned up libidos over the course of this podcast i would say that trish takes the cake when it comes to the sluttiest girl out of all the films we've seen thus far because this girl would fuck anything any lot like there's one point where like they're talking about the house mother like you you know you get introduced to the house mother and they're like they're talking about her going to bed she's like i wonder what she dreams about at night and it's like this elderly woman are you like are you like nibbling on your finger because of this old dame? Like Trish, set some fucking boundaries. My God, I don't know. This girl is sexed up, and she's trying to fuck everybody over the course of the whole movie, which you know, good for her. But well, she doesn't get to. But let's say the, the other the other girls are whores too. They're they're swapping guys left and right. They're fucking everything under the sun. I'm like, good God. It's like. Whoever wrote this, obviously it's a guy because you you see who it is. His name is very clearly listed as a screen. He's like has no clue how sorority girls really are. Like this is like his fantasy 
of how sorority girls are, how, you know, college age girls are that they'll just sleep with anybody and it's all interchangeable. Um, because they're fucking everything. They're fucking the cops. They're fucking the gardener. They're fucking everything they can get their hands on. All of them, except Nancy. There are so many moments of this movie, Troy, I've got to say, that do feel like a porn parody of a slasher. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there are several moments that feel like, I'm like, God, am I actually just watching, like, a, like, early 80s, like, one of those, like, cheap porn movies that somehow made it to cinemas? Because it really feels... The storyline and how things develop are very unrealistic. Yeah, they're fucking cops. They're sleeping with each other's boyfriends, and then they're just switching without question. Nobody's offended. Everyone's okay with it. That's not how things work in reality. But yeah, you can tell whoever wrote this was sitting there with like a cigar in his mouth. Like, <laughs> that's hot. Yeah. Sandbag breasts over banisters. Like, yeah. <laughs> So then we get, as the girls are sitting around, Miss Jensen, who is, she's not the house mother, is she? She's like the cook, but she's acting as the house mother for the weekend. The house mother's out of town, we learn. But this Mrs. Jensen is kind of your quintessential, introduced as like your quintessential, nice, goody-two-shoe, Mrs. Garrett type character who, who, who loves all of the girls, cooks for them, makes them their favorite meals. She comes in, she's like, dinner's ready, it's stew and cherry pie for dessert. Just the way she says it, it's like, oh, cringe. Yeah, and uh, uh, she's given me, I'll say this, well-acted performance, giving me young D. Wallace vibes. I see that. If you, I don't know if you see it, but I, I yeah. definitely got some D. Wallace vibes. They keep talking about this cherry pie like they're going to fuck it. I mean, this cherry pie comes up a few times. Did you notice when they pass it around, it it's, it's basically looks like a store-bought cherry pie? It's one of, the, it's one of, one of those cheap pie, t- like, aluminum pie tins and my oh, bitch, it's also like you didn't cook it's that. like an, it's like an individual size yeah. one so they're all cutting like slivers of it oh trust me i noticed i was like i would do i would eat that entire pie for one sitting but yeah uh it's a, it's a big to do this pie and this beef stew they're all they're all about it and there's nothing else like it's beef stew and pie there's no vegetable there's no side but it's a big to do then and uh, meanwhile it cuts to a moment here in the midst there's a lot of dialogue in this movie that is disposable i'm i mean i'm just gonna say it right now like people are talking about things that i don't care about left and right but as this is happening there is a cut to uh, what appears to be like a coffee table (laughs) with a book with a like a notepad on it and a picture a framed picture of the girl that fell off the banister earlier on and it's yes and like it's basically like if you didn't put together in the first 45 seconds of this film this is a tale of vengeance and in order to ensure that you're completely aware of that fact the director is going to force imagery down your throat through over the progression of the film so that you know that there is like vengeance afoot and that that really kicks off here with this moment of this all too subtle moment of some mysterious figure looking at this picture of the girl that fell over the banister and it then proceeds to just flash to images like in case you forgot because you saw her too briefly this is the girl that fell over the banister she is prominent in the story and then 
there's like a notebook which which has something written on it. I'm assuming it's was that, that's what it, was that the names of the I'm girls? Get, I could not I'm thinking tell. It's the names of I the girls tell. that were involved, but you don't get like a close up or anything. So like the figure just like mysteriously slashes a red X over it, like fuck them, and that's all you get. But like you can't see what they're slashing out, so I'm just left to assume it's the names of the girls. But like it really is like a heavy handed like in case you weren't aware, someone's out for vengeance. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just a weird, awkward scene that we really didn't need. I mean, you find that out in the reveal. Like, you don't need to... I mean, obviously, it's going to be a tale of revenge. When you start your film with a girl falling off a banister at the same balcony, at the same house that all these people are now getting killed at, we can probably put two two together. But back at dinner, we find out that Leia has come up with a plan that she has her boyfriend coming to visit and stay the weekend with them because she knows that Miss Calvin's going to be out of town. And her plan is to like get Miss uh, Jensen to put some like drugs in her milk so that she sleeps for the whole night so that these boys can come in and spend the weekend with them. And they're like flying in. It's real awkward. Like this is another thing that doesn't make sense. Does this sorority house have just like a plane landing strip that planes can land on? Because that's what happens. Well, there's like... There's one point where, like, they're like, thank God for that landing strip that got put in. And then Trish goes, thank God for airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's very confusing. Um, But, yes, like, apparently the one, it's TJ, I think is his name. TJ, I guess, has a, his father has, like, a private plane. And so they get the the pilot that operates this plane to fly them in for the night. To, you know, get into mischief and debauchery and what have you. It seems as though this landing strip is very close to this school. And aside from that, that's all we really get from it. It is confusing. Nobody else, apparently nobody else uses this landing strip. It's just reserved for a a girls finishing school. Uh, How far... how far away do how far away do these guys live that they have to fucking fly a plane? You know what I will say? There is the one thing that I heard over the course of the film that I was like, okay, maybe this is kind of explaining things a bit, is a character later on says he's like, This is a very prestigious school. And all of the students that attend this school, their parents are prominent political figures. So I'm really thinking that this has to be like a pretty like ho 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 kind of school not saying it's i would think it makes sense for it to have its own fucking landing strip but like i'm assuming maybe it's at least in an area that would have a landing strip whatever it's a whole lot of nonsense like this movie does not make a lot of sense let's be fucking real but yeah there's an airplane boys are in the airplane and they're coming to bang these women yes but before that after we after we hear this plan there is apparently another girl who's upstairs sick named cynthia because Miss Jensen's like, why don't you call Cynthia down for dinner? And they're like, oh, no, she went up to her room. She's not feeling well. She said she's not hungry. So then it cuts to a guy. Where the fuck did this guy? He didn't have to fly in. This guy that's outside Cynthia's window, he got there just fine without a plane. He's out there, Cynthia, Cynthia, throwing rocks at her window. And she goes to the window and sees him. And she's like, I'll be down in a bit. Not before she like totally just takes her... T- all of her fucking clothes off and standing in front of the window butt-ass naked (laughs) she's illuminated just bathed in blue moonlight stripping down breast to the sky and this guy could be let like no less interested he's like down there he's like hurry the fuck up he's like smoking a cigarette she's trying like presenting herself to him and he's like over it he's pissed off and he like 
gets into like a like a Captain Morgan pose on a log, like smoking a cigarette, bitching at her because she's taking too long and she's trying to seduce him. And um, as he's puffing away, he doesn't notice the mysterious figure that comes up behind him and like tackles him to the ground. And you'd think this was going to be like a kill sequence, but it's not. It's just, <laughs> it just like he gets like wrestled to the ground and it cuts away. And so then you think like, oh, cool. Okay, well, it's like a cutaway kill. At least we'll see like the body or like the aftermath at some point. But you never fucking do. We like this kind of all happened so easily without even introducing this character. He's in it for like ten seconds. He ha he doesn't have a kill. He just gets tackled, and then you never see what the fuck happens to him. It's such a fucking wasted moment. And he doesn't even fight back. Like the the killer just like pushes him down. He's like just laying there like oh oh no no. Troy, nobody in this movie fights back. Like, if there's one issue I have with this film, it's about half of the, the kills. Literally, people just, like, walk into knives or just lay there as the killer, like, tackles them and, like, beats them. People, like, just, like, lay their arms to the ground and let the killer, you know, beat things over their heads. They don't do anything <laughs> to defend themselves. So, yeah, this is a very lame cast when it comes to, like, them actually, like, defending themselves. Well, because you're right, because uh, Cynthia finally goes downstairs and she walks outside and is immediately just like stabbed in the chest, like immediately, like the killer just walks up and plunges it. And she's like, oh, oh, oh. and you can tell like the, the cries were like dubbed in like this film has a lot of really bad dubbing. Can we, we didn't mention that. Oh, my God. Some of the worst, some of the worst. Um she's got like a smile on her face she's like marching down to be her, see her boyfriend and like i mean maybe the, like she was coming up on a bend or a corner where somebody was jumping out and taking her by surprise but it sure doesn't look that way because it's just one shot and she like literally just like walks towards the camera and suddenly she just gets stabbed in the chest by somebody who i'm assuming she would have had to have seen standing in front of her because they're in the middle of like an open plaza yeah especially wearing a santa claus costume uh, well is he are they even in a santa claus costume yet well i don't i'm assuming i don't know maybe not yeah because uh, we see a bunch of characters coming up soon that are all wearing santa claus costumes and i assumed i thought maybe that's how this killer procured that costume but again very vague this this storyline is not tightly wound um so yeah this girl just walks into a knife dies with the gasps of another woman uh, and and we're moving on like that's all the situation's never addressed again they never ask about Cynthia again like people don't seem to care they don't care when anybody disappears like no no these these characters have no concern when like half of them show are, are missing they don't we'll get there trust me we're gonna get there we have a lot to say okay so it cuts back to dinner Nancy thinks she saw something outside. I don't know how you're in a fucking dining room. There's like n no windows that we saw. And she's like, I saw something outside. And the other ones are just like making fun of her. And they're like, Oh, you, you, you eat too much sugar, Nancy. Of course she's moping. I, I mean, I, I like Nancy. I like the actress. My problem with Nancy in this film is they make her, they make her too, too childish. Like, does that make sense? Like way, like too child, like they go to the extreme to make her like innocent to a point where like when the other girls are drinking alcohol and getting beer, she wants to have milk. I mean, it's just. Yeah, they really like, they really wanted to like push like the virginal aspect of this character to an extreme. And I think it's like to make her endearing, but it sometimes it just makes her unrelatable. 
or um, kind of annoying. I don't know, but she's very well-intentioned, and compared to these other whores, um, she's kind and and seems to be a good human. So, like, I mean, she's got that in her favor. There is a point later in the film where she teams up with another very virginal, well, not a virginal because they have sex in the film, but very pure of heart uh, individual. And I feel like almost like I'm watching, like, Escape to Witch Mountain or something. Because they're like, they're like <laughs> sneaking through the house together, pigtailed and... And it just feels very, like, out of place because the rest of these characters are so fucking promiscuous. But, like, yeah, no, I like Nan. I like Nancy. I think she's very sweet. I just think she's uh, extremely awkward and does not... What is she doing colluding with these strumpets? Because they, uh, they are leading her down a path of destruction. Yeah, she's stuck with them. Uh, Leah wants to go upstairs to get a tissue. And, of course, the uh, Trish is like, bring, bring me some perfume. The Chanel, please. So Trish goes upstairs and Trish, uh, Leah goes upstairs. Leah's fucking annoying. This is the most annoying character I've ever seen in a fucking movie. She is singing all the time. She is a bitch. Like they try to paint her to be the sexy one. And she looks like 48 compared to the other ones who actually look like they could be play playboy centerfolds and this haggard looking thing running around. That's supposed to be the sexiest one of the bunch. But she goes upstairs, she gets her tissue, she gets her perfume, and as she's leaving, guess who we get introduced to? <laughs> crazy Ralph. Ralph, even. It's Crazy Ralph. I mean, he's doing double Ralph. duty in movies here, apparently, though he's gotten a really interesting bleach job for this film. Because <laughs> uh, uh, the name choice, unexpected and surprising, that they would just have another crazy ralph but here we are um i've got to say that i do have to acknowledge leah um to me she looks like if malachi from children of the corn <laughs> went through a trans or transition <laughs> um because like she's she has a very specific look uh not what i would consider i mean to be an attractive woman but i don't i She's just got really strange features, but I'm not trying to slam on this gal. I don't think she's actually, I don't think she's a bad actress. I just think her character is no, quite obnoxious. Her performance, she's probably one of the best, she's probably one of the best actresses of the bunch. It's just her character is really annoying. And uh, I don't buy that, you know, she's the one that is like the, she's painted in this film to be like the leader of the sorority, like the the hot one that everyone wants to be. And she's in charge, but I'm like, Oh my God. All the other girls are like 20 times yeah. hotter than you. Like, and she's the one that sleeps with half the guys that show up. I mean, this woman is getting dicked down. Like she's in a brat, a Brazzers film. I can't even get as much dick as this broad is. Oh, I don't Good believe Lord. that. Troy, do you see the comments you get on this, on the dark night of the podcast thread? It's about my, my it's about my voice though. It ain't about my oh, love. Oh, well, it's like a very phantom of the opera. Thing. People are, <laughs> People are so drawn in by your sexy voice. Weird Ralph comes in a room to check on the plant. He has, he's come to check on the plant. She's like, you're weird. Leave me alone. She's such a bitch. She is. And she, her bedroom is like, it is the bedroom of like, um, like a, a gay power bottom. Like it is brimming <laughs> with plant life. It is like a, it, it's like a rainforest. It's filled with plants. And even the decor, I'm like, I know a lot of bottoms. Who, this is what their lives are like with their green thumbs. So uh, she's ahead of her time when it comes to that shit. Oh, but can we talk? I want to get here. I want to get here. It's the next. It's the next morning, and uh, uh, 
the sorority has a very lively visitor in Miss Tina. <laughs> this reminded me of you, Roger, in like five years. Bitching, moaning about how your back hurts. You're going to die. You're having surgery. She, this Troy. woman is a nonstop. Oh, my God. I need a whole movie with this character. Miss Rantoni. Troy, I think we can all agree that the star of this film is, is one Tina Ranzoni. And um, <laughs> she's... She comes in, she starts chewing on table scraps, <laughs> talking about her impending bypass, <laughs> insulting the rich, pompous oh, bitches she, while they're she in the room. She has a whole bag. I mean, she don't give she's a calling them. She has a whole bag. She, she's calling them whores. She's calling them bitches. <laughs> and let me tell you, one of the greatest mistakes of this film is that it introduces an intriguing character such as Tina Ranzoni, and you never get another no. scene with her again. How no. fucking dare this? <laughs> this dame, like, she should be going down in the annals of, like, cult movie history, a la, like, oh, God, I don't know. Like, Aunt, she's like an Aunt Martha from... Sleepaway um, Camp. Sleepaway Camp. Only, like, if, if only she would have gotten, like, a real proper... I don't kill her. They just kill her. Like this woman, you're going to introduce this broad to this movie and you're not going to ax her off or something. Like she has so much potential to be like such a memorable, memorable moment. She also gives me vibes of like black Christmas of the, like the house mother from black Christmas who had like all the, the witty one liners. Um, there was so much potential with this character. I was so mad. That I never saw she, her. Again. She brings cannoli even. Oh my God. I fucking love cannoli. And then as she's leaving, do you notice as she's getting ready to leave, she's going through the the, the uh, counters and like putting stuff in her purse. Oh, but finding like spice bottle. <laughs> I love this. She's checking the stew. I love this broad. How come? Oh, she needed her own movie. She needed. Yeah, I was so upset when she. Yeah, and and, and Leah comes in the kitchen. And Leah's obviously is not a big fan of Miss Ranzoni because she's like mispronounces her name every time she says it, and that's when Miss. Uh, that's when uh, Tina is like. I don't know why you work with these rich, pompous whores. Right when, right when Leah's in the room, I'm like, you go, you go, you don't hold back. She doesn't care because she thinks she's going to be dead in a week from her bypass surgery. What does she have to lose? Oh yeah, she's so morbid. I love her. I know a lot of Italians they operate like Ranzoni does, just like life's about to end. You might as well live it while you can. One thing she says that's very interesting is she makes this very specific comment to um, Ruth, where she says. If something goes wrong, you think they're going to tell the house mother regarding, the, you know, the girls and, and uh, how basically they can't be trusted. And that very specific line is one of the few things we get that alludes to what happened earlier in the film. Obviously, that something happened and they didn't tell the house mother. Yes. Because one thing that I think is a huge issue with this movie, a massive error and really impacts the gelling of of the you know the story and and how things fall into place and and how things connect and the, the through story that carries it the girls never once discuss the incident amongst themselves it's never brought up it's never talked about it's never alluded to um uh, they never say that they did anything wrong or that they have a secret or that you know it's never implied and I think this is a grave error with the, the with this writing because this this movie is so bloated with excess characters and weird little plot devices and side stories, but they never choose to like delve into the one thing that triggers 
the whole story to begin with, which is this this death. You know that someone's out for vengeance, but the people involved, there's no remorse, there's no discussion. You can't even really tell if it's the girls that were involved in the beginning because it's such a brief sequence, you can barely see them. They really, really made a, a misstep with not having this be a, a, something that's brought up a little bit more amongst the lead cast. So you know who's involved. Yeah, well, that, that's a good point because when I, I did try to watch the opening scene a couple times to see if I could recognize any of the f- girls as any of the main characters. And the only one that I really think was there uh, blatantly that you can see is the character of Melody. Mm. But again, they never talk about it. It's never brought up. You know, it's, it's it would have been interesting if they would have at least acknowledged that the, some a, a girl died just two years ago at this house, it's not brought up. It's not like even, you know, it could have been even like something that was even sort of like a, a urban legend now. Oh, you know, one of the sorority girls fell off the balcony and died. And blah. But it's not, these girls act like they don't even know what happened. It would have been really, it would have just added that extra layer if the girls were aware that this had happened and maybe perhaps what's going on has to do with that. You know, very much like it could have been like a sorority row type of thing, but it's not Uh at all. It's, it's, and, and even like the ending, like makes no sense because the killer is trying to kill somebody that blatantly wasn't even involved. Um, And the killer kills a whole bunch of people that weren't involved. Yeah. We often talk Troy about like a good, a good horror film really knows how to like raise the stakes how knows how to take the plot and elevate or enhance certain moments to just kind of amplify the experience or hit it home make it easier for the audience to understand why things are the way they are and why certain people are being killed you know raise the stakes make it easier for us as viewers to understand why this is an intense moment or people are in danger uh, this movie does the opposite. It lowers the stakes, in my opinion. It, it takes a scenario where, like, there's so much room to explore what happened, and they just don't take advantage of it at all. They just, like, kind of let this opening sequence and what happened become something by the wayside. You see a few little hints of it over the course of the movie, like, discreetly sprinkled. But other than that, it's just, like, it's not even really brought up till the end. No, so after Tina Ransoni leaves... Leah tells Nancy that she's the one that has to give Miss Jensen her milk because Miss Jensen would never uh, suspect Nancy of doing anything like that. So Nancy gives in, goes up, gives uh, Miss Jensen the milk, uh, and then the girls go out to the plane. We get a shot of the plane landing in this landing strip that apparently this school has and they're all running through the woods the lighting here is all over the place so one one shot it's light light is noon out the next shot it's pitch black yeah yeah what like there is no consistent uh time of day or, or, or over the course of the whole film like at one moment it's it's like you're looking out the windows it's dark night then all of a sudden it's dusk. Then all of a sudden the sky is glowing. Like there's a soft light to it. Very inconsistent. Troy, I want to backstep real quick to this one specific moment because it is something that I caught that I thought was pretty actually well played. And the last time we really get something that kind of connects the tissue with what happened earlier in the film. Um, when she hands the milk off to Ruth, there is a very obvious moment that if you look above the, the house mother as she's working over her um, sewing machine, right above her sewing machine, 
the portrait of of the girl who died earlier in the film is prominently displayed above her. It's very prominent. Definitely foreshadowing. Yes. And it's, but it's, it's, if you're not paying attention, if you're just paying attention to the dialogue between the two of them, you're not going to see it. I did not see it the first several times I watched this film. Um, and then I caught it because you're not, your focal point is not there. You'll fo- your focal point is on Nancy in the doorway, hanging the milk to Miss Jensen, but it is there. You're right. So right away, if you're paying attention, you're probably going to figure out pretty quickly who the killer is but they do throw it they do throw a twist in it's not as obvious as you think they've also done a good job up to this point of throwing in a few additional potential red herrings well i was just gonna say one of them is very blatantly ralph yeah because as the girls are running through the woods to go out this plane nancy gets separated from them and she's out in the middle of the woods and who does she run into ralph he's just out in the woods by himself and he he's there to give her a flashlight He's like, here, it's dark out here. You need, even though it's broad daylight, here, you need this flashlight. He gives her the flashlight. So obviously they're trying to set this Ralph character up as being a red herring, obviously. I think they were even trying to set Tina Ransoni up as being a red herring. When she's, her comment about death, when she's like, oh, we all have to die sometime, real ominously. So they are trying to throw in some red herrings. But if you're paying attention, it becomes pretty obvious, I think. Imagine if that would have been the finale, though. Oh my god, the monologue. That old Italian woman with an axe, give me that. I, I live for that. She's eating a cannoli and oh. she's delivering her, her, her final pieces of dialogue. Um, Ralph also has a strange kind of infatuation with the character of Nancy that it kind of makes sense because Ralph has like a weirdly religious edge to him. He speaks a lot of religious gibberish, Christian gibberish. Uh, it's always directed towards Nancy. I think it's because Nancy is very pure of heart, and he he acknowledges that, and so he gravitates towards her. But because of the way it's written, you can't tell if it's well intended or if it's actually something a little bit darker and more of like a, a weird, like a twisted fascination. Um, but th- I think they do play that angle pretty well of giving a motivation for him to be a red herring. He definitely seems to have a strange attraction to Nancy. And you never find out though. You're not, you're you never find out. He's not given any sort of, it's not expanded upon because yeah, we'll get there. So they, the, the, the guys finally arrive. The girls get to the plane. So all these, the various guys get off the plane. Uh, they're wearing, a couple of them are wearing Santa Claus outfits. You, you get TJ, you get um, Alex, Tom, and then another one. I don't know what his name is, but they're, it's a pretty handsome group of guys for 1980. I mean, you know, hey. But then, yeah, then you, oh, and the pilot. For some reason, TJ, who is like the leader of this group of guys, uh, he like makes the pilot stay behind. Like even the girls are like, oh, we have room for him. He's like, no, he's not coming. He can sleep in the plane. And it's, but it's never, that's something that's never expanded on is why he hates this pilot so much. There has, there's no story. There's just like, oh, he makes the pilot. And the pilot is actually played by a very prominent 70s porn star, Harry Reams. Oh. Yeah, who was in Deep Throat, The Devil and Miss Jones, all those classic porn films he was in. So good old friends with David Hess, the director. Lucky us getting treated to that man meat. If only he dropped trial, we'd be that much more lucky. Uh, The dubbing by the plane is awful. I just have to say it. Um, Yes. And that that poor pilot, like, let us be clear, he remains at that plane... For, I'm assuming, roughly at least 24 hours, if not 48 hours. He is forgotten, 
for a period of time that I find unacceptable. This man, like, where is he going to go? Is he just going to just live in this plane? I mean, it's not a very big plane. He, they find him at one point. He's sleeping underneath it. Like, I mean, this poor man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then it cuts to all, the, all of them back in the house. And one of the guys is playing his guitar and singing a song. Uh, you get a shot of... Which he has no business doing. I don't, yeah, it's something about Drifter. I don't remember. But yeah, he's like, stroking his guitar. You get a shot of Santa in the workshop <laughs> sharpening a blade. Very reminiscent of the shot in Curtains last week of the killer sharpening the sickle in the basement as the group's upstairs having dinner. Now we get Santa doing it. Um, we get, I mean, the, yeah, you're right. The dialogue on this film drags at some point. The group's sitting around talking about shit that I don't care about. This Alex character, this nerdy Alex character, who actually, for me, becomes progressively sexier and sexier as the film comes on. Like, when I first saw him, I'm like, oh. But then as the film goes on, I'm like, ooh, okay. Well, Melody starts throwing herself at him. Just throwing herself. And, like, I'm sorry. This guy has no business having such hot girls, like, hanging all over him because he's such a nerd. He's so awkward. But he's got to have big dick energy like crazy because, like, this girl is just trying to jump on it. And then pretty soon he's trying to fuck everybody. And, like, you know this guy's got to be, like, fucking hung to his kneecap. Yeah, what's funny is he is, like, this virginal, like, nerdy character throughout the whole film. And then, like, the second he has sex, you know, he's the stud all of a sudden that wants to sleep with all the girls. It's kind of funny. Yeah, he secures, like, this weird, like confidence it's very strange how that comes about um his character is very inconsistent i don't dislike the character i'll say that but he's just very inconsistent so we get trish finally going to get beers from the kitchen with her english accent she goes in the kitchen to get the beers opens the refrigerator we see uh, a hand come in and shut the kitchen light off and basically santa comes into the kitchen and she thinks it's tom Tom, would you stop messing around and seduce me like a man? <laughs> take that silly mask off. And she like turns around. She's like, take me to bed. And he immediately grabs her and slits her throat with a butcher knife. Man, I was so pissed that slutty Trish was like the first of the core group to go. Um, because she was definitely the most entertaining in my opinion. But I will say... That, that throat cut looked pretty good for the brief moment that you saw it. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't see a lot. You don't see it but for a brief second, but it does look good because he like pulls her head back a bit and you can see the big old gash like open up. It's pretty gross if you think yeah. about it. It's like pulpy. Yeah. yeah, I was pissed too because it's twenty about 20 minutes into the film and like the most interesting character of the girls is killed. Yeah, I was like, eh, I, I wanted more of Trish. Trish could have stuck around a, a, a lot longer. Yeah, she deserved a sex scene at least. After I mean, she's been talking about it the whole time. At least give her what she wants. We should have seen her knockers. I mean, we saw him hanging over the railing. Why not see him? Oh, my God. You can't hold him back. She makes me think of that. Have you ever seen Superstars of the Mary Catherine Gallagher movie starring Molly Sheen? Oh, yeah, yeah, Where yeah. She's like, these are my breasts. They're so huge. You just got to strap them back because her... Her tits are just pouring out of this top. It's a waste. It was a waste. We should have seen him. So Nancy goes upstairs and she runs into Ralph. And he's like, you should be in bed. Like his fascination with telling these like 20 some year old girls that they should be in bed is quite creepy. Like why? She's not 12. Like this is a full grown girl. And you're like, you should be in bed and lock your door because there's evil out here tonight. 
It's just like, oh, how much more of a red herring, foreboding fucking character can we get? Simpleton. <laughs> this guy is very simple. I'm very confused. Like, I think he's supposed to be kind of slow, but they just explain it by him being religious. It's very weird. So next, back downstairs, Trisha's taking too long. So Tom gets frustrated and he goes to look for her. He goes into the kitchen and sees like, it's very obvious, like the kitchen door or the kitchen door, the refrigerator door is still wide open. He doesn't bother, like it doesn't phase him. He doesn't bother closing it. He just walks walks right by to go look for, for, for Trish. And he goes outside and right away, like there could be a lot of suspense built into this film, but they, they rush things quite a bit. Uh, because he goes outside and literally five within five seconds finds her body like stuffed into what is it a barbecue? Yeah, she's like tucked away in like a, yeah like a small like cabinet area beneath a grill. Um, <laughs> and his response is very like understated. I mean, uh, yeah, they they don't play out the suspense aspects in this movie anywhere near as well as they could. Um, and this moment especially, like, for being one of the early kills and following such a good throat cut, I gotta say, it really kind of deflates the balloon. Because this guy, Tom, he turns and he's instantly, like, comes face to face with the Santa Mask Killer. And you really see the Santa Killer for the first time. Not the most effective of all the Santa Killers we've seen by any means, but, you know, you get the gist of it. You know what it looks like. And they start, like, to have, like, a battle. Where, like, the killer swings at, uh, swings at him and he misses and the, uh, uh, Tom runs off and then the killer, like, cuts him off and they start, like, battling and struggling. And this moment, like, could have been something maybe kind of exciting or suspenseful, but because of some very, like, awkward choreography, and I'm talking awkward, um, and no, like, the, the cinematography doesn't do it any any justice it doesn't help it at all because you could have at least cut it in a way that like when you know certain people try to like hit or dodge you could have made it more more creative with the cuts but they just like leave the camera on the sequence so you kind of just see tom fall to the ground and just lay there and he literally puts his arms to the ground and he stops fighting at a certain point and the killer just mounts him and beats his head in with like a brick and that's the death but tom just like gives up he just stops yeah it's really it's really awkward and i thought i think i think maybe it's because the santa killer hits him in the head with a rock and it stuns him but it's so dark the lighting is so bad that it's really hard to make that out whether that's what happened or not i'm gonna say it is because he literally like you said he falls to the ground and just lays there lays there for like 15 seconds as clearly we see this santa killer grab a big old boulder come over him and drop it on his face and he doesn't move once very awkward very awkward kill and that's why i say it, it when i say that like the editing here we mentioned this earlier the cinematography and the editing does not do the sequence justice because i've seen some i have seen some fight sequences turn out looking pretty kick-ass just because of the right editing you know, you know when to cut it at the right point. You know when to show certain things and when not to. These guys just kind of let it linger. And they don't, you don't know what's going on because it's just kind of sloppy. And it just doesn't do the moment justice. I'm sure it could have been done a lot better. That's a lot of the sequences in this film are sloppily edited. That's just, that's one of the things that this film really has an issue with. Whoever edited this film, you didn't do a very good job. Now we get the fact that the Santa Killer is apparently burying bodies. 
right? Just burying bodies throughout the whole property. So he kills these people and he buries them. This Santa is pretty damn busy. Do you know how long it takes to dig a hole to bury a body? Let alone two. We saw how long it took and Megan, it's missing. It's like 20 minutes. Yeah, this killer's got a lot of time on his hands and he's sure fucking lucky that nobody's like wandering outside and happening to like, you know, catch him up to his mischief. Things happen to just play out for the killer exactly as he hopes. Because yeah, things go to plan for him. Um, Meanwhile, inside, nobody's concerned you're checking on anybody who's missing, by the way. Let's just make that clear. Cynthia long forgotten uh never gets brought up again (laughs) no one gives a fuck about cynthia she could have died from her ailments her illness that she spoke of no one gives a fuck um yeah no one does the work they need to do to prevent the killer from succeeding at his task which is killing everybody melody in the meantime has seduced alex and gets him to bed with her uh, the other couple, Sam and the guy, I don't know his name. I really don't know. Um, do you, John, Charles, Peter? I don't know. He's pretty hot, but I don't know his name. He's the one that was playing the guitar. I don't know. Uh, yeah. They're, they're like flirting. He's chasing her around the pool table and like into the living room. And she's like, oh, you can't catch me. I'm the fastest girl in school. And so he like pretends he falls on the floor and hurts his back and of course she goes to help him and they they make out upstairs leah is dancing and serving tj some appetizers this what leah is presenting a charcuterie board to like a very elongated dance number and she's like like goes going on about this way longer than she needs to they could have cut this down about five minutes this dance number um, but yeah, she's got this lavish charcuterie board. And then they just start fucking making out. Everybody's getting ready to bone. She's so annoying. I would throw her ass out yeah, if I was too She's so lanky and she has no breasts. Not saying that little breasts. <laughs> they're bug bites. You see them eventually. And I seriously thought I was looking like a seven-year-old boy's body. It was very uncomfortable. It made me feel very, very uncomfortable. Um, I did find, I took a note. His name is Blake. That guy's name is Blake. Blake. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Blake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Blake. Well, Blake can, Blake can get it, but I didn't know his name. Yeah, so. yeah. They have a moment where they're chasing each other, and you get these nice kind of aerial shots from above the mm-hmm. Christmas tree. I really like these shots. You see them a few times because, A, you get a Christmas tree. I'll take it. In this movie, at this point, like, I mean, it's about all you get, but it's quite a large tree. And you get a really nice scope for just how big this house is as well. It looks very grand. So I like these shots. You get, you get them a few times. Um, there's also a sequence of them kind of trying to, like, you know, get sexy, like, making out and kissing on each other. Um, and I found this moment unusually unsettling because the score completely drops out. There's no score. It's just the sound of them making out. And the camera's kind of doing a really slow push-in on the two of them, and it just kind of goes on for a while. And it gives the it does give the sense that, that there is someone else in the room without really doing anything. It was a surprisingly effective little moment. I don't know why it stuck with me. But you do then notice that Nancy is upstairs, like, looking over the railing, just watching. <laughs> oh, she watches quite a bit in Nancy, this. Nancy's a voyeur. Nancy likes to watch people getting it on, and she kind of moves from window to window, room to room, <laughs> checking it out, watching the scene. I half expected her to break out her vibrator and just start tingling her pussy and watching these t- all these people make out. That girl needs it. If anyone needs it, it's fucking Nan. 
Uh, but she's, yeah, well, and then Leah comes out in the hallway to get more beer and runs, bumps into Nancy and is like, you scared the shit out of me. What are you doing? Sneaking around the hallway. Well, yeah, that's exactly what she's doing. She's watching people fuck. So she brings Nancy with her because Nancy's like, oh, I was just thirsty. So Leah's like, come down with me. You want a beer? Nancy's like, no, I want milk. I'm like, come on. Go fuck it. I'm surprised it wasn't chocolate milk. But they they poured in a wine glass. And she's walking around the rest of the movie with milk and a wine glass while all these other broads are drinking fucking tequila and hard liquor and beer and Nancy's walking around with their fucking milk. Well, these broads are also getting railed by multiple (laughs) men within a 24-hour period. So clearly, they and Nancy are living their lives on different paths. Um, I do want to acknowledge one specific little moment, Troy. The moment where Nan, I call my Aunt Nancy Nan, I can't help it. So where Nan and um, and Leia bump into each other, it's in this like kind of like entranceway outside the bedroom. And there's this like really prominent stained glass door, you know, stained glass window. Um, and the lighting is like this really bold pinkish red lighting. And for a moment... I got a really awesome Argento vibe. It's brief, but there's a few shots in this movie that are very Argento. There's some nice shadow play with a silhouette and a knife later on that was also very Argento, I felt. But yeah, I was very much like, ooh, that gives me some Suspiria tingles. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, there are some very inspired shots. Like you just talked about, the the overhead shot above the Christmas tree with a couple chasing each other. Very cool. Few and far between. But they're there. They're there. Like I said, that's what I said at the beginning of this. There's the film has some heart to it, which I think is what makes it charming and endearing. Uh, I think people here really tried their best on this film. You know, you can tell. You can tell in a film where like the people just half-assed it. Like they didn't care. They just wanted to get it done. Nobody really had a passion for the project. I think you can tell that the people that were involved in this actually tried to do their best. Now their best might have been not all that great but at least they tried you can tell you can tell but oh we do get the scene where uh, uh, once leah leaves nancy alex comes downstairs and startles her as she's wiping up blood from the floor like nobody questions this leah leah at one point says oh well crazy ralph must have cut himself on his hedge clippers what it's a whole it's a whole pool of blood if, if that was the case, I'd be like, oh, my God, that's a lot of blood. We need to check on Ralph. Like, we need to, we need to figure this out. Yeah, like, it, it is a, a large volume of blood. Whoever lost this amount of blood is not in good shape. No, but she's wiping it up. Alex comes in and says he's thirsty. And, of course, she gives him milk, too. Yeah, nothing gets me parched like a pool of blood. Ugh, I hate milk. Yeah, me too. That I'm lactose intolerant. Like I, ooh, oh yeah, no, you don't want milk. No. It just t- the thought of drinking milk grosses me out. I've always referenced it as udder juice. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Like, yeah, it's the juice of an udder. Um, like the thought of me drinking something that came from a t- cow's tit is not appealing yeah. in any way. I picture myself putting my lips to the teat of the udder. Yeah. I'm like, this is basically what this is, and it's a big turnoff for me. So seeing this broad walk around the whole movie with milk and a fucking champagne glass, I'm like, bitch, go. Ugh. They make me think of uh, uh, Always Sunny. Do you ever watch Always Sunny? Where the I've not. Oh my god, there is a family in Always Sunny called the the um, the McPoyles. 
and they're a very disgusting white trash family, and they have like a, a weird infatuation for drinking lukewarm milk. And it's like, but it's always in like goblets, and I'm like, oh, it's such a McPoyle moment. Yeah, yeah, she's very like she needs to up her taste buds. Well, she goes outside. And she's walking around with her milk and she's putting her hands in the pond. And and you hear like this, the most awkward moaning noises. It sounds, I can't even describe it. I really can't. Like it's not even, these do not sound like moans of pleasure. Let's just put it that way. They're like, and of course she goes in to look at the window and it's, Sam and of course, obviously now Blake. We find you've since you've informed me, it's Sam and Blake are fucking on the floor of the living room, and it's supposedly their sex noises. But if you're watching their lips, it doesn't match the sounds that are coming out of either of them. And Nancy is sitting there watching for like five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah, she's like she's like leaning over like the banister, just like yeah, mm-hmm, looking good. Looking good. And then she like doesn't she's she's viewed multiple sex sessions at this point. She like wanders away. No big deal. Yeah, and then she goes and pretends like she's intrigued by sitting by the little koi pond while she's still listening to these weird sex noises. And then it we go inside to the couple, uh Sam and Blake having sex. And again, a very awkwardly edited scene because they're they're fucking he's on top of her it's very friday the 13th part two vibes but apparently the killer the whole time has been wearing a suit of armor where when did he get into this without anybody hearing it is my question because wouldn't that make a lot of noise troy uh, correct me if i'm wrong but a suit of armor is a complex yes it's it it is it's a lot of moving parts it's a lot of pieces that you like, you you don't just like peel it off and put it back on like a day wear. Like you need someone to like assist you. Into, and like as we find out at the end of the movie, maybe maybe this maybe this, this person's been in this suit of armor for for hours, for all we know. But I mean, this is not an easy task getting this on, and it is a. I mean, we're talking a full suit of armor with a feathered plume atop the 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 mask and everything. It's a lot. So when this suit of armor moves, like needless to say, I was taken aback. I was surprised. It was the last thing I expected. Well, and and the whole thought of like the killer getting in this is ridiculous because so you're what happens if this couple decided not to have sex in the living room? Like you're just going to be standing around in a suit of armor for no reason it's like the intention very much was played that the killer like was waiting for this couple to come in what if they didn't what if you have to take a shit well yeah in the suit of armor like there's a lot of things like i mean i feel like if I, even if you're breathing within the suit of armor you're going to just hear like <gasps> yes <gasps> like because you're in a giant metal mask like there is nothing discreet about being in a suit of armor. Every little movement you'd hear like, ah, 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 ah. and uh, apparently this guy can do it for hours because out of nowhere, stealthily, this suit of armor manages to discreetly like dismount. Well, he shoots, well, first of all, he has a crossbow and he shoots, he shoots poor Blake through the head with the crossbow as he's fucking Sam and like blood sprays all over her and like 
he falls on her and then she just lays there screaming and this guy in the suit of armor is able to run over to her she doesn't even try to get up run over to her and immediately chop her head off with a battle axe like even like the fact that if you're in the suit of armor i'm sorry i don't think you're going to necessarily move fluidly like you're going to be like you're gonna be like the tin man after he just got oiled and he's doing that dance number for dorothy and the scarecrow you know like you're gonna be moving rigidly and this this suit of armor manages to get the job done very easily yeah, so now we have Blake and Sam have both been dispatched. Nancy goes back inside, and Ralph just barges into her room. Nancy is very okay with this. <laughs> yes. There's this moment, though, where she, where Ralph is in her bedroom, and he's like, Nancy, you got to be safe. There's something wrong. I'm a man of the, the woods, and I sense that something's wrong. you got to pray. And there's this brief moment where she says real quietly, she's like, Ralph, back away. But like he doesn't, and he's like gets in her face, and he's like, you got to pray. And she's so sweet to him. She's like, okay, Ralph. Okay, good night, Ralph. Yeah, she bids him good night. Yeah. And I'm like, I would have been like, you, you creepy motherfucker, get out of my fucking room. The moment the window opened, because he closed through her window, I would have been screaming. I've been throwing things at him. I don't give a fuck who it is. Like, y'all, you don't through my window at fucking what it be 2 a.m. spewing biblical nonsense at me. Because, yeah, he starts talking Christian jibber-jabber and giving her Bibles. And she's just sitting there wide-eyed. Like, I guess you're like, what the fuck do you do if this guy's going to try to hurt me or something? Because he just walked through my window like Peter Pan. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a very uncomfortable moment. And her reaction is very understated. Oh, God, it is. Uh, we see Santa is now burying the bodies of what we assume are Blake and Sam. Uh, and he has Sam's head in a bucket, which he carries away with him, which I thought was a nice touch. And there, you know, so, uh, and then upstairs, Melody is trying to fuck poor Alex, who is nervous as fuck. Like he's stuttering and stammering and she's trying to come on to him. And he's like, I've, he's just not, he's like, take me to my room. And she's like, no, you're getting in bed with me. It's basically rape. I mean, like this. Melody is basically unhinging her jaw and swallowing this boy whole. Hey, let's talk about that. Because if the roles would have been reversed and it would have been a male doing that to a female. Oh, yeah. That hell would be raised because but she is very much like he clearly says, I want to go to my room. Take me to my room. And she's like, no, you're sleeping here. And she like grabs him and throws him down. And then she's like, who buys your shorts? And he's like, I do. And she's like, oh, they're awful. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. So he takes them off. <laughs> he takes them off. I mean, at that point, I, what else are you going to fucking do? I don't know. But then she apparently starts jerking him off because he's like, oh, oh, my God. It feels so good. Oh, oh, Melody. Oh. And then apparently they fuck. I mean, she's a lovely girl. And she's beautiful. And at yeah. one point in the conversation, she's like, do you like it? Do you like it? It, it costs so much money. Is she talking about a boob job? <laughs> Did she get her? I don't I know. Like she's talking about getting her tits done. Was she talking about her boobs or her that stupid skimpy thing she was wearing? I didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. know. And apparently he doesn't know either because he's just looking like a deer in headlights the whole time. But uh, somehow, some way, Alex gets laid. He was able to perform because immediately it cuts to the next morning and it's right on close up as if, of his face. And he says, I think the Rams are definitely going to win the pennant. 
Okay, so it's just the oh, it cringy, yeah. cringy. Because apparently, Roger, you don't become a man and talk about manly things unless you have sex with a woman. Oh my god, TJ even says he's like, "This is the first time you've talked about something that wasn't scientific jibber jabber." The whole right, time. and it's like, oh, because like when you're a loser, you talk about science, but now that you've gotten laid, you talk about real man stuff like football. It's such a ridiculous character oh, it. point. Yeah, it it it's kind of, it's borderline offensive. Yeah, uh, and I don't get I, I don't care. I mean, I don't get offended by by stuff. I'm not one of those people that are like, oh, we gotta cancel the movie. I'm not offended. I better tweet about it. But I'm saying it, it is really a now. It just hasn't aged well. No, because it really is. It's blatantly saying you are not a man, or you don't talk about manly things, or want to do manly things until you fuck up a, a woman. Because his very next thing is, I want to go play football. Yeah, well, and like earlier, I said that his character was the most inconsistent for me, and it's not that I don't like him. I like the character, but now at this point in the film, now that he's had a taste of the vagina, he um he goes through this weird kind of like almost like metamorphosis where like now he's super like aggressive with pursuing Nancy. I'm not aggressive, but like he's like got her on his radar, and like the character like the like the 24 hours prior would not have done this, but now. He's very, like, he's chasing her around. He's really, like, feisty. And, like, his whole character has shifted. Um, and I, I don't I don't love that. Like, I don't think that character needed that. I kind of like that he was, like, nerdy and uncomfortable and awkward. Um, and now he's always telling, like, telling Nancy how cute she is. You're real cute. Like, he just becomes kind of a bit of a creep. And uh, I don't think he needed that. I like the character as he was. I agree. Miss... Jensen comes out and she's serving them breakfast and of course she's not too happy that the guys stayed the night. She's like, this is against the rules. You guys got to get out of here because Miss Calvin's going to be back tomorrow and she would not be happy. And they're like, yeah, we're going to leave as soon as our plan is fixed. So TJ suggests that they have a picnic. So they're all going to have a picnic. Nancy volunteers to... And in the meantime, Roger, we have to point out, half the fucking sorority is gone. Missing. Nobody bats an eye. Nobody. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. No, nobody is, like, at all concerned or curious. They do say, like, I guess everyone's still sleeping. But, like, uh, I'm sorry. You guys all live in, like, a sorority together. You would, at this point, be, a, like, aware of each other's presence. Especially with the volume of people that are missing. Two couples have been dispatched at this point. Like, there are quite a lot of people who are dead within one evening. I would be questioning things. Yeah, Nancy even volunteers to go look for the others in the house, and she goes upstairs and nobody's there. Um, and then we get a scene where Alex is chasing Melody around the woods. TJ and Leia are on a picnic blanket, having a picnic. Nancy somehow backed down in the woods. Like, that was an awkward cut. Like, we didn't even need to see... We didn't even need to see Nancy go upstairs because it serves no purpose. Like she doesn't run, nothing comes of it and it just cuts back to all of a sudden she's in the woods now with everybody. TJ says something that offends her along the lines of, oh, don't worry, Nancy, you'll get laid sooner or later. And then I love, it's just so stupid. I love that she says, oh, I'm going on a walk. And Leah's like, 
TJ, you're such an asshole, but Nancy is supposed to go on a walk, and if you notice, she gets up and she like walks like two steps away, and then just stands there like twiddling her thumbs for, for about five minutes as they're talking. But then she finally does go on a walk, and this is when she runs into Alex, who becomes, like you said, very aggressive towards her. Tells her he's cute, she's cute, and she's like, no, I'm not. He's like, yes, you are, yes, you are. And he starts chasing her around, acting like he's like Quasimodo. Like, and she's like, oh, Alex, leave me alone. And she runs through the woods and he's chasing her. She falls into a pile of leaves and fucking Ralph's body <laughs> pops out of the leaf. How did that happen? Is that possible? Is he on a... Sp- <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like it's like that game. I don't know if you played this when you were a kid, but remember that game Don't Play Daddy? <laughs> where like the but, like, daddy would like sit up and be like... Oh, how does that... How, how did that happen? I don't know how this works because... He springboards up, and, and he's like he's got like an axe mark in the top of his head. I mean, it made for a surprise. I don't know if it's the right kind of surprise. It's not exactly what I was anticipating, but like I didn't expect it. But I will say this is here is something I'm mad about with a with a character such as Ralph, and not Friday the Thirteenth Ralph, but you know this Ralph, um, as he was being set up to be quite the red herring, and his infatuation with preserving nancy was becoming something i was intrigued by they just were like uh well might as well just get rid of this one and we're not even gonna show it happen like boo he's dead like like, that's all and like i was like pissed i was like god you guys got rid of one of your best red herrings in like such a disposable way and yes it does like kick off the next aspect of the story it does certainly cause a change of events but like, come on! Like they could have given me something way better. Yeah, I mean, an off-screen kill and a body that springs up like a goddamn—I yeah, mean, it's just a carnival <laughs> game. It's just ridiculous. My pro- my thing is, I don't. I'm not a fan. I don't know about you. This is maybe nit- nitpicky. I'm not a fan of a slasher movie that doesn't take place like in one night. Like I, I, I don't like I, one of my gripes about this film is the fact that there's a day change i don't like that it just seems unrealistic to me a because like you we've talked about half of the fucking sorority guys and girls are gone and nobody thinks twice about it nobody's nobody's looking for them nobody's wondering where they're at like i i want it to take place all over a course of a night so that it just it makes sense that, that, that all of the action is there kind of we get we get that this the the the, the vibe of this, when it changes to the next day, really, cha- I think, tonally, it kind of changes the film a little bit, uh, because then it kind of turns into like this police procedural for a few minutes. Ugh. The police show, yeah, I know. <laughs> the pl- because after Ralph's body's found, the police show up, and they are very much uh, obviously it's been uh, it's obvious Ralph has been murdered, and I would think that okay. Would you really let everybody stay at this place, or would you be like, guys, you gotta go? We get, we're gonna we have to we're gonna crime scene this off as a crime scene. You guys gotta go find somewhere else to stay. They don't no crime scene tapes put up. Nothing. They're like, oh well, we're just gonna tell the the parents of the other kids who are also missing that nobody seems to bat an eye about. And TJ all of a sudden gets really mad. He's like, you have to do that. We don't want them to know. We're supposed to be somewhere else. Nobody gives a fuck that this Ralph guy has just been axed in the head. A few things. First of all, I agree with you on the statement of, I like my slashers taking place over one night. The only time I don't like it, or the only time I, I uh, strike that, 
The only time I do like it or don't mind it, if it's something like Scream, where it's specifically like the story, like it, the story actually develops off like a body's been found. Like when it's played out the right way and it can enhance the story, I'm okay with it. Like I get that it serves a purpose. With this, it does the opposite. As soon as like the police come into it, the writers of this script, I wouldn't say were the most skilled or knowledgeable individuals when it came to writing a movie in general, but at least like when they were writing the slasher, like the first chunk of the film, it kind of felt like within their wheelhouse because it's simple. Like a slasher, you only need so much. You need hot girls, you need boobs, you need deaths, you're golden. Now that we're getting into police procedural territory, it becomes glaringly all too clear that they had no fucking idea how to write this material. They do not know how police operate or act or talk or dress. Like, the, okay, the police officers in this movie, I feel like they're going to try to sell me a used car. Every single police officer in this looks like a bad porn actor. They're disgusting. They all have thick, like, Brooklyn accents. Yes. Jersey accents, even though they're in fucking California. So that doesn't make any sense. Nobody's actually showing badges or doing anything police like they're just claiming to be police but they also have like bad suits and like they uh, just very uncomfortable and so you've got this one like detective who's like the main detective and he's yelling out orders and demanding things none of which are actually like proper procedure and then like nancy's like i'm scared i just gotta say it i'm scared and i i want you to know it I'm scared. <laughs> this fucker, like, this creepy-ass detective walks up and delicately takes her chin and the tip of his finger, and he, like, holds it for this entire speech. He just holds her chin, and it's 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 very fucking awkward. Like, I don't understand what, what he's trying to get across to her. Is it maybe a sense of comfort? Because not for me. For me, it feels rapey. For me, it feels very rapey. <laughs> It's super creepy. He's like, oh, honey, it's understandable to be scared, but you can't blame yourself. No, you can't blame yourself. And then he like looks into her eyes for what seems like an eternity and just holding her chin. And then he breaks away real quick. In any other movie would be extremely romantic, but because of like th what this scenario is, it just makes for very uncomfortable. Um, I also need to acknowledge, Troy, nobody has brought up mention of the pilot who is currently living in the airplane like, who has set up camp at this airplane like they haven't even said to the fucking cops like hey our pilot like can he maybe come here can he stay like there's a pilot waiting we should probably inform him that half the people he flew in are dead tj <laughs> tj wouldn't allow it uh because yeah in a few scenes they actually ask to get go get the pilot melody asked to go get the pilot and teacher like no i hate him he's not coming but uh we do find out apparently that ralph was in a mental hospital and so they're they're setting it up that ralph apparently was like a bad guy that like sold drugs or something <laughs> that has has people that might be mad at him it's, it's so christianly ralph <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it really is not landing at all but they're really trying they're trying really hard to make ralph still still seem like a red herring which like he's dead um uh this is, I gotta say, this is the point in the movie where, like, there is a whole lot of yakking going on. People are talking about things. Oftentimes, they're talking about the same thing 
over and over and over and you just really stop caring because like people are sitting down they're having conversations here having conversations there i don't believe this this is my opinion on what's going on yeah this is where i think everybody went where do you think everybody went and like honestly we could breeze through this whole like i'd probably like 30 minutes of the movie really easily because it's just a lot of nonsense well it, it, i mean basically the bottom line is leah's a cunt like, I hate to use that word, but she's a bit, she is a, an uncaring, cold, she's like, I don't care. They're coming, they're coming back. They're, you guys are idiots for being worried. Even though we just found a dead man on your lawn, she is not concerned about it at all. Plus, she wants to, she flirts with this cop. She, like, takes him up to her bedroom. Like, <laughs> she fucks him. Like, like, let's be real. Eventually, she ultimately fucks this very homely cop. Like, I mean, Leah's got <laughs> the lowest of standards out of everybody. Uh, and I can kind of see why. No offense, Leah. But she's currently dressed like she's off some Carol King album cover. Like, we're in a very not flattering ensemble. Yet, for some reason, everyone wants to fuck her. Well, she has the choice between TJ, who's actually quite handsome and, you know, buff, buff and burly and a kind of a good-looking guy, and this cop that looks like a overweight 70s porn actor yeah all the cops i first of all if i was one of these kids and these cops were being brought into my house i'd be scared i had done a dirty deal with the mob because they are not reliable at all they seem like they're putting on a really bad act they've got like low unbuttoned shirts with like gold chains on they they look they look very shysty I don't trust these guys, but apparently they're cops. But but then outside, remember the main okay, the main cop, the chief is is Polanski, Chief Polanski. He's the he's the chief. He even tells the two officers when they're outside, he's like, You guys better keep your hands off those fillies inside. If I find out that you're diddling any of them, there's gonna be trouble. I'm like, you have to actually tell your officers that there's a fucking problem there. They probably shouldn't be working for your police force. <laughs> well, not only that, but then one of them diddles anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, these are really bad cops. These cops are horrible. Diddling, diddling away. <laughs> <laughs> and then I love that they tell Miss Miss Jensen, they go tell Miss Jensen that, the, that they're in danger. And she's like, oh, why would you say that? Somebody's Why would we dead? be in danger? <laughs> yeah, she, she is totally unconcerned. Oh, and they're like, well, don't you think the man that whoever killed uh, Ralph could still be on the premises? And she was like, oh, well, I suppose you're right. Like, like, is it really that shocking to think that that person could still be on the premises? I. It, but she has, a, she has a rolling pin. Oh, yeah. She, like, takes a rolling pin. She's like, if somebody gets smart with me, I have this. Quite the threat. <laughs> so yeah this is when we cut to the night the group's having dinner the cops are going to be doing their shifts um this is when leah takes the, that one officer up to her bedroom and is like heavily flirting with him and she like leaves him in her bed and he's like i need something and she's like oh maybe later so she goes down back downstairs with the group uh miss jensen goes to bed uh, and this is the dialogue we get when Melody's like, maybe we should bring the pilot back because the more people, the more protection we have. And and TJ's automatically like, no, I hate him. He's not coming in. He goes to get a beer. Leah gets up and he's like, TJ's like, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to go shower. He's like, oh, great. Sounds like a good idea. And she's like, no, alone. And this is when she goes upstairs to fuck this homely, ugly ass cop and leaves, leaves studly TJ downstairs who I'm sorry. TJ, I would totally do in a heartbeat. This cop, ugh. Oh, absolutely. Well, TJ's also charismatic. He's got personality. This cop, I'm sorry, like, no offense to this actor, but he is haggard. He is 
careworn. He is weathered. He is everything I don't want in a sexual partner. And for some reason, Leia is just drawn to him. And uh, seems to like it a lot. I mean, she seems to be quite pleased with herself. But yeah. Well, at least TJ has the common sense to, to like not even give a shit and like go f- start flirting with Melody. So at this point, literally everybody within the cast has exchanged sexual partners. Because now Alex is pursuing... Nancy. Nanny, who is, who is now donning pigtails, by the way. Like, as if she <laughs> couldn't be any more cherubic. She now has these big blonde pigtails. She looks adorable. <laughs> Um, yeah, Melody's banging TJ, or, you know, aiming to, um, and Leia's fucking that old cop. I mean, everyone is, it's like, uh, it's like a musical chair. It's like everyone's moving around, switching partners. Good for them. You know what? I mean, like, if that's how you get your kicks, I ain't judging. I've done way worse. Yeah, and then outside, one of the cops is, is uh, patrolling the perimeter, and he's walking around, and he aud- he runs into Santa. And uh, Santa immediately puts an axe in his head. <laughs> Literally runs into Santa. My issue with a lot of these kills, and I've said it before and I'm going to say it again, is why does nobody instantly react to the the horrifying Santa approaching them? Like this cop, he's walking up and he's like, what are you doing here? Like he doesn't even brandish his gun. Like, I mean, someone's been killed on this premises, mind you. This foreboding Santa figure comes out of fucking nowhere, obviously hiding something behind his back and he axes him. And... You'd think this cop would at least have some whatever reaction before this happens. But no, no, he just walks right into the axe. Yeah, and now Nancy and Alex have decided... Well, Alex has decided he wants to go explore the house. So he brings Nancy with him. So there's this long... Again, we don't need to talk about a long scene of them walking around the house where Nancy's acting like she's never been in any of these parts of the house. It's like, bitch, how long have you lived here? She's like, I've never been in this room before. I've never been up here before. I'm scared. With her pig old pigtails bouncing around. They do go up into the attic at one point, though, and it does make for one rather cool moment where they're ascending the staircase, and there is a window behind them as they go up the staircase, and as they're, they're you know, going the bend into the next room, you see that Santa is on the roof just watching them. And it's they never see it, it's not addressed, it's this very simple, subtle moment, and it's very creepy. I actually rewound it the first time I watched it, partially because I thought Santa was literally on all fours, doggy style, watching them. And I was like, how erotic. But it turns out he's just squatting in a weird way. But um, yeah, it just makes for a cool bit of imagery that was kind of unexpected. We cut back to Leah in her bedroom. She actually fucked the cop. She just finished fucking the cop. He's in bed. He's afterglowing. She's going to go take a shower. She pulls the shower curtain open. And in the meantime, we do see Santa sneak into their room. A silhouette of his holding a knife. One of the best knife silhouettes I've seen. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And he, he, he opens the door, goes into the room. She goes, un, unrobes, opens the shower curtain. And somehow, I guess, fucking Sam's head is attached to the shower head. Upside down. Upside down. And, of course, Leah starts freaking out, screams, and then immediately the cop bursts in with the butcher knife in his back. And followed by Santa, who corners Leah's naked seven-year-old boy body into the shower. She's screaming bloody murder. And we do see the killer, actually. And I wanted, I don't understand. I want to know, again, this is not explained. The killer lifts the mask up to Leah to show her who it is, puts the mask back down, and we find out, lets her live? 
not only lets her live, but has quite an impact over her and how she acts for the rest of the film. Ugh. It's very confusing. Yeah. So the, TJ and Melody are outside, and they're talking, and he's she's like, I thought you were into Leah. And he's like, yeah, I was. And she's like, oh. Well, he's like, but I'm into you now. She's like, oh, I didn't think you noticed me. I'm like... Bitch, you look like a Playboy cover girl, and Leah's haggard ass looks like she's 50. Why would you not think that he noticed you? I don't, it's so weird. I know we're picking on Leah, but come on. They could have found a, a better-looking <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to portray her... Well, it's for the specific... Yeah, the yeah, yeah. around yeah. in their roles. Like, yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, Alex and Nancy are just sitting by the fire being pure. I just, I mean, they're just being pure... They're holding each other. They're canoodling. It's very delicate. Um, but yeah, this whole sequence that's coming up here with um, with TJ and Melody is one of the moments that I find pretty redeeming in this movie. I gotta say, there's not a ton of in-your-face gore in this film. You get a lot of things that are not necessarily executed well. But when there are moments that do hit, I think they hit rather you know well they do a good job um and basically what this leads up to is a moment where tj is talking to melody and out of nowhere what appears to be a piano wire or some kind of a wire hoops down around his neck kind of like a noose almost and starts to pull up but as it pulls up it starts to cut through his neck because it's like a it's like a sharp wire and you start to see like the meat of his neck separate and it's a really good effect there's no seam uh really really well done the the throat cuts in this movie look pretty fucking great i gotta say yeah but somehow santa claus got into up into a tree without them noticing this santa is so fucking stealthy but it it is a cool throat cut it is it's it's very like you know uh, it's one of the one of the best gore effects in the film i think uh, but TJ now is dead. Melody runs back to the house. She's pounding on the door. They let her in. They tell she tells them that TJ's dead. Actually, she, the, the actress here is pretty good. She actually delivers hysterical pretty damn well. I think they uh, go upstairs to look for Leah, and they all find uh, the officer's body in the bathroom and the head still attached to the shower curtain. And of course, the girls freak out. Alex is like, you know, trying to be strong, but he's like, I gotta go get help. And he runs to a phone. Conveniently, right as he picks up the phone, we get a shot of the killer outside cutting the phone line with a giant hedge clippers. Um, and this is when you hear Leah singing. And the two girls are like, oh, that's Leah. So they go out to the hallway, and Leah is now in a beautiful white gown, dancing around the hallway, singing her trademark la 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 song in a trance, just in a trance. So why? I don't know. Um, it's never explained. I tried... Like when this, when we hit this twist, and oh, what a twist! Because I did not anticipate this at all. I tried to feasibly like put the pieces together in my head. Like, what could possibly explain this? Maybe the reveal was so shocking she lost her mind. I don't think that's a good reason, but maybe that's what they're trying to like get across. The only thing I thought of once we consider the finale. The only thing that I think maybe makes a little bit of sense is that the individual drugged her. 
Because if you think of what Leah did earlier with the milk, I wonder if it's something kind of alluding to, I know what you did and now I'm doing it to you, but you don't see it happen. So I'm literally, I'm just, I'm reaching, I'm grasping for straws here. I don't, I don't think the film's that smart, to be honest with you. It's not, no, but but still, like, you've got to provide me some kind of explanation. Yeah, well, there isn't, and it's, it's, there's, it's, there's no explanation. There's no explanation for why the killer doesn't kill Leah, who very much was probably part of the group of the girls at the beginning. And in fact, I think she was, I think she's the one in the group that's wearing the um, Santa mask and holding the ax. Uh If you go back to watch the beginning, I'm pretty sure that's her. So she actually had something to do with it. So why does the killer let her live? Um, it, It makes zero sense. And I would have just axed her right away when she started singing because it's fucking annoying and dancing around. Um, but they, they see Leah, they run downstairs and another thing the film does wrong in my opinion is this unmasking happens so quickly. There's no suspense. They're all downstairs with Leah and all of a sudden Santa comes in the room and tries to stab them and they back away and it's Melody, Nancy and Leah's dancing around. Leah's out of it. Forget her. She's just dancing around the whole time. And all of a sudden you hear a very female voice say, you killed my baby. You killed my baby. And she pulls off the mask. And lo and behold, it is fucking Mrs. Jensen. I knew it was Mrs. Jensen from right Yeah. Away. Like, I mean, it was pretty obvious. She was just too pleasant, too genuinely kind to not be the killer in the long run. But yeah, it really like, I mean, first of all, what a very Friday the 13th moment. Oh, it's very much so. She's chasing her around saying, just being like, you gave her drugs. And Nancy's like, I don't even know her. And she's like, don't you lie to me. Trying to stab her and shit. It's yeah, it's very Friday. It's very Betsy Palmer-ish. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I mean, I think the actress is is not bad in the role. No, she's um, actually I good. Do, She's actually quite good. I do think it comes down to just a matter of like poor pacing again. Like this movie really struggles with pacing issues. Too many moments of bloated dialogue, not enough time devoted to the suspense. Like, and it definitely hurts this finale. The finale is often clunky. Um, it has a few moments that are pretty cool, um, but for the most part, yeah, it kind of just like sputters along, and it 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 totally misses the the boat when it comes to this reveal i agree on that it could have been so much bigger it's it's a very rushed yeah it could have it's very rushed it's very there's no suspense she just she says you killed my baby and rips off her mask so now we we learn that basically the girl at the beginning that fell off the balcony and was killed is mrs jensen's daughter who again if you were paying attention you would know that from the picture it's above her her sewing machine and she's getting revenge on the people that she thinks killed her baby melody has the good sense to run out of the fucking house uh whereas nancy's just cowering away but nancy does get to pick up the fireplace poker and whap whap her in the back very very similar to you know friday the 13th that's what happens to miss Voorhees. knocks her out for a minute um nancy is able to run upstairs to hide melody has a melody is smart like melody takes her ass off to the plane like she's like i'm getting the fuck out of here she runs to the plane the pilot is under the plane in a sleeping bag sleeping poor guy can't even sleep in the plane he's under the sleeping bag she's like wake up wake up everyone's dead everyone's dead you you drunk get up and he's like what's going on and she's like we got to get out of here and something's wrong with the plane it won't start so they are 
in front of the propellers trying to start it. And he's trying to fix it. And in the meantime, Santa has snuck into the plane, which right now should be a very indication, a good indication that there's more than one killer. Um, but Santa's in the plane, and as Melody and the pilot are trying to fix the propeller, Santa starts the fucking propeller and chops both of them My up. My favorite moment in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it's cool, but I like. I wanted a little bit more for Melody. Like that was. I agree. I pretty agree. quick. Um, it was a very like. It's it's got like a it's almost got like a sense of humor to it the way it's done because like the the propeller turns on and like you just see meat and blood splatter against the plane and that little Santa master sitting behind like the like the the driver's seat just like smiling away. But I love that like it's so different from a lot of the kills we're used to i'm so happy they did something that was completely unique in their own you know i i can't think of other than dawn of the dead doing the helicopter blade to the scalp you know i can't really think of a lot of kills that i can even compare this to and i was i was kind of like no they didn't just do that they literally just killed somebody with a fucking propeller i'll take it like i'll take it I thought it was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I do wish I would have seen her get to have a big grand death sequence, but I thought it was very entertaining. It is. It's a very cool kill. Very creative. It's one of the more creative kills in the film, but it's very unexpected. It teaches you to stay away from propellers, you know, and... and, and yes, please, listeners, stay away from propellers. Right? Back at the house, Miss Jensen's looking for Nancy, and she's, she's saying, Nancy, real creepily. Yeah. Also making herself very obvious as to where oh, she is. Yeah, yeah. And there's a point where Nancy has picked up a butcher knife and as she's coming around the corner, Miss Jensen's there and attacks her and it's like, die! And they have a little struggle. Yeah. When she appears out of like from behind the corner, like she could have easily gotten the best of Nancy. But because she chooses to like brandish the knife over her head and scream, die! Like, really loudly like it takes away any surprise factor and and nancy's made completely aware of her presence they fight on the ground nancy like punches her and gets up and, and runs but the only way she, the only way room she can get into how she's cornered is is the back room that has the balcony and there's nowhere for her to hide so she goes out on the balcony again this is horrible editing mm, oh my this god whole, this whole yeah i don't even know what happened um basically miss jensen comes into the room and she's like, Nancy, I know you're in here. It's the only room. And you see her head towards the balcony, right? And she and, and Nancy's outside on the balcony kind of cowering against the door. You see Miss Jensen. All of a sudden, Miss Jensen has a flashbacks of her daughter falling off the balcony. And then all of a sudden, Miss Jensen's body hits the ground. What a fucking way. There is you don't see how she falls over. You don't see if did Nancy push her over? Did she jump over herself? What the fuck happened? You you don't know. You really yeah, do not know. It's such a waste. It happens so quickly. It's really upsetting because like you're getting this like grand build up after all of this of of you know everything's culminating to this final showdown between who you know the last girl standing. Well, no, we got fucking Leia spinning like a fool. But uh, the, the last sane person standing and uh, Mrs. Jensen and like you're expecting this like kind of awesome big final moment. And even if it even if it did end up that Nancy got the best of her and pushed her over the railing, show me that moment. Let me see the irony in that she has the same exact 
you know, death as her daughter. That could be cool. But because they, the way they edit it, like you see the flashback, and then as you see the body falling, it cuts to her body hitting the ground. And it's, it's, I think they tried to be like artistic and ironic, but instead it ended up just being completely fucking lame. Like it's such a fucking letdown after this whole big to do. With fucking Mrs. Jensen killing all these girls. Like, you don't even see Nancy get the best of her. You just have to kind of assume. And when you have to assume a death, which happens multiple times over the course of this film, when you have to assume a death and how it transpired, I'm sorry, you did not succeed. Yeah, it's really clunky. It's like it's like they tried to... It's like they had this elaborate... Maybe this elaborate fight on the balcony plan, but they realized they couldn't pull it off. So they just did did the best they could and it just turns out real shitty yeah i almost wonder if like the actress because she was older i'm curious if they like had to be very delicate not saying she was like crazy elderly but you know she's a she's an older woman i wonder if they're like we can't risk anything we're gonna have to find a creative way to do this yeah probably nancy goes downstairs and is crying and as she's she's downstairs crying another santa claus comes in carrying the body of mrs jensen and he's like you killed my wife. You killed my daughter. And he unmasks. And dun dun dun. It is Chief Polanski. So the cop is also involved. And like I, when this happened, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I like a twist. Like I love a twist. But come on. Like how is this fucker a married to this gal? involved in general in his awful suits and his strange accent it just oh my god you know what this is an example of a script where they opted to go for like shock factor over like any resemblance of realism or like what could really happen in this moment i like a heightened reality don't get me wrong but this was too much for me it was too much it's a twist that comes out of nowhere I mean, and I'm, I mean, hey, I'm a fan of twists. Look, I mean, again, again, I'm going to bring up my film, Mrs. Claus. It has a, it has a twist that's actually kind of similar to this. Although I feel like the, 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 the character that ends up being like the surprise twist has a lot more to do in the film than this chief did. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily come so far out of left field. But how would, how would the, okay, so these girls have, have, have lived with Miss Jensen for years. In some cases, some of them have lived with her for over two years, right? They they don't know that she has a husband. That's exactly what I'm saying. That she's married. That she's married and has a husband. She ha- they've they've never seen pictures of them together. Um, they've never. And how does nobody know? How does nobody know that that was Miss Jensen's daughter that died? And was Miss Jensen's daughter one of the sorority girls, or did she just hang out at the sorority with her mom cooking? I don't know. We don't know. Right. I mean. That, ooh. This is, this is what I'm saying. This twist is like, it's just so poorly thought out. They did it for the shock of it. They're like, I feel like in the moment, they're like, oh, and we should make him a killer too. But like, they didn't think of like the intricacies of that. Like, okay, for example, I like that they put the portrait of the girl over Mrs. Jensen's sewing machine. That was actually pretty cool. However, in doing it that, like, don't you think that someone would be like, hey, is that your daughter? Like, why is, 
why you got that girl's portrait over your sewing machine? Like, you know she died here, right? Like, would that not ever be brought up? Would nobody ever notice this? Would nobody ever question it? Would nobody have known if, I mean, I'm assuming this girl had to be part of the sorority because they were literally chasing her saying, sorority, sorority. Like, I'm assuming she had to be part of it. So how would they not, like, how would, would Mrs. Jensen, when being hired on a school premises, not be vetted out to be, like, her relationship be acknowledged, you know, to this girl who had recently been killed on the property? I mean, how would this not have come to light? Yeah, it makes it makes zero sense. Zero sense. To have someone, to have the character that's so tied to the sorority as, as like, their cook and everything be the killer and then pretend like none of these girls know anything that she's married that her daughter was the one that was killed you would think all that stuff would be common knowledge has anybody not been in her room and saw the picture of the girl about it's just it's so ridiculous but however mr polanski and they have different last names miss jensen mr Pol come on but he starts choking poor nancy she's screaming alex who has disappeared for the last 20 minutes where the fuck has this fuck been he disappeared now he shows up with a bow and arrow and shoots Mr. Polanski through the back with the arrow. Kills him. Nancy freaks out. The two of them reunite. He comforts Nancy. They, they're like, we got to get the fuck out of here. Let's go. And they leave Leah, who is like dancing on the balcony, doing her little la, 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 la. And they run off into the moonlight and the, the movie ends. Yeah, like where the fuck has Alex been this whole time? Like he's been presented as kind of like, the love interest and kind of like, I don't want to say the hero, but like, he's the one that was like, let's go wander the house. Let's find out what's going on. Come on. Like he motivated a lot of this. I mean, at least he shows up with that fucking, uh, you know, arrow and uh, shoots him. But uh, he does it from a safe distance to ensure that he's not involved in any way in this confrontation. Um, it definitely makes for his character to like have a rather unlikable conclusion. I was very bummed with how his character ended up uh, playing out at the end of the film because yeah, he he definitely like he only helps out because it's like safe to do so. I don't know. It was definitely like a letdown. Yeah, it's it's like he was hiding. You know, when he knew when he knew the Santa was there and attacking everybody, he was upstairs hiding. And he only came out kind of at the last minute because he felt like he was maybe forced to. I don't know. Yeah, it was really weird that, that he disappears for so long. But yeah, the movie ends. We don't know what happens to Leah except that she's dancing on the fucking balcony. And they make um, this like big thing of it because it goes to like like a like a red freeze frame, and she's like highlighted dancing on the balcony like it's this grand moment. And really, all it leaves you thinking is like, okay, well, why? Why was she dancing to begin with? Like, why is this a thing? Do they give her a lobotomy? Did the killer give her like a brain trauma that we're not aware of that's causing her to be mentally unstable? Because there's honestly, there's no explanation for it. And for it to end on that note, I was like, well, that's fucking weird because it doesn't make any sense. But a lot of the movie doesn't make sense. And I'm left with more questions than answers, to be real. Yeah. Yes. There are way more questions than answers with this film. But with that said, I mean, it does, like I said, it does possess a charm that is i think undeniable in parts it's not the worst slasher film of the 80s by any means it's actually quite rewatchable i mean it is a film that i watch every december um and i have fun with although watching it like four or five times for this particular film 
uh, or for th- this particular podcast. I don't know if I'll, I'll watch it again for a while, but I mean, I, I don't hate the film. I, I, I do feel like it's for what it is, you know, it, it's fun and there's worse films out there. It needs to amp. It needed to amp up the Christmas atmosphere. The script definitely needed a few revisions um, to make it tighter, but I, I do. I am sort of pleased that over in the last maybe 10 years, 10, 15 years that it has uh, gained a pretty, you know, sizable following. You do see this film brought up every Christmas now as, as, as one that people watch on a regular basis. Um, I, I think mainly because it does have the, the killer Santa aspect to it, but other than that, yeah, there's not a lot of Christmas to it. Yeah, no, I almost feel like this is a movie that I don't know if I would necessarily need to bust it out around the Christmas season to want to enjoy it. I, the seasonal aspect is not really part of the allure for me. Um, I, I actually like it for some of the characters. I enjoyed several of the kills. Um, there's a few moments that I do think are executed fairly well. Um, overall, though, it is definitely like one of the less polished entries into the genre. Um, it's definitely a, a, a bumpy road to get to the finish line. But you know what? At the end of the day, I like everyone involved in the race. And I think the cast is pretty enjoyable. There's not really many a weak link in this. Um, and I um, I think it's fun. I thought it was fun. I mean, it was. it's not a great piece of cinema by any means, but I had a good time watching it. And I can see myself watching it again. Not necessarily soon, but again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we we harped on some of the 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 actors, or but it had nothing to do with the you know it had nothing to do with them. I think the performances are across the board are pretty solid. It's just some of the characters are are quite unlikable, and some of the character uh, shifts or character arcs don't make a lot of sense or un, are unnecessary. But I feel like everyone does a great job. It's just yeah, there's so there's there's things that needed to be either omitted or explained. And the, the ending is quite is one of them, and the whole deal with Leah, you know, going into this dance trance just made zero sense. But hey, gives us something to talk about. It is to all a good night. Yeah, yeah, and and overall, the flaws here don't fall back on the cast. I do feel they fall more on uh, everything else behind the scenes, from the script to the editing to the pacing to that, some of the direction fact that even despite having a rather weak script um the the talent saw it through and that that's what really got me through this film and and helped me enjoy it so yeah yeah i definitely think uh the cast is what makes this one i do not think seasonally it is something though that's really worth a lot of mention uh unfortunately like i appreciate the cover art but when it comes down to a good christmas slasher Aside from the, the Santa costume, I really don't have a lot to praise for this film. It doesn't strike me as something seasonally standout. Yeah. Yeah. But that's to all a good night. Uh, I, I, yeah. I mean, that's, we, we, I think we get a deep dive into it. So going on two hours once again. So why don't we wrap it up? Tell the audience what our next week's pick is. And then, yeah, wrap things up. Girls, listen. It was unavoidable. I, this, You know this has been coming. A remake of Troy's favorite. Um, we're doing the 2006 remake of Black Christmas. I know. I know. Calm down. It's a good one. 
it's a real good one. It's actually probably one of my favorite remakes. I love the original Black Christmas, but you know what? I think this movie does one of the best jobs of both acknowledging and respecting the original core material while also making it its own thing. I think it they it walks the line very well. Um, I cannot wait to talk about it. It's been at the top of my list of films I've wanted to discuss since we've started this podcast. And it's finally the time because tis the season. Um, Troy, I've been waiting. I'm very excited. Oh, I saw this one in theaters when it when it, the, the opening day back in 2006 and on Christmas Day because the original is one of my favorite is is it's not one of my favorite the, the original is my favorite horror film of all time so this one definitely had i had a lot of high hopes for it and i'm just going to save my comments for the episode we're not even going to talk about the 2019 remake but i'll have a i'll have a lot to say about this one don't even fucking get me started on imaging poots 2019 quote unquote remake of black christmas because let me tell you i'll shit all over it i hate that movie we will review it one day because i i you're gonna have to give me a fucking like sedative or something to get me through it though trey because it gets me so irate but you know what i'm i'm laying out there i love the 2006 one if you're a fan of the 2006 one and you want to hear me praise it tune into next week's episode because i'm 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 putting my feelings out there i can't get enough of it it's one of my favorites so troy i'm chomping at the bit to talk about that one with you well, yeah, we can't wait. And guys, again, if you're interested in bonus episodes, check out patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. If you don't want to do that, but you want to somehow support us, you like what we're doing, please, please, please go to Apple podcasts, leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show. The more five-star reviews, the the more chances it, it has of, of popping up in, in searches. So please, please, please do that. Let's get, hit, hit the five stars. Uh, you don't even have to write anything, but a nice review would be awesome because we're going to bring you plenty of holiday cheer this December. So guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us talk about to all a good night for what seems like an eternity. So yeah, until next week with Black Christmas 2006, we bid you adieu. Adieu, season's greetings. To all a good night. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. <laughs>